You're listening to Mental Work. I'm your host, Bronwyn, an early career psychologist based in Australia. And this is the podcast taking a closer look at the challenges faced by early career mental health professionals so they don't have to go it alone. Hey, mental workers, and welcome back to Mental Work. Today, I'm very excited to be sharing the microphone with Kira Ricard. And Kira, hello. Hi, how are you? I'm well, thank you. And today we're going to be talking to you about what to do when a personal crisis comes your way and you've got an active caseload. So you are actively seeing clients and you've got something that just hits you out of nowhere. And Kira, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and and why you're here? I'm a psychologist. I've been working for a few years now on and off due to my own health issues. I'm also very much interested in supporting provisional and early career psychologists. And I'm also both a policy nerd, which is where I work in my day-to-day life now, and an activist around voluntary assisted dying legislation. And that touches on why I thought it might be useful for me to talk about this topic. I'm dying. I have metastatic breast cancer, which is a terminal illness. And I also have really severe autoimmune problems um, with a diagnosis of Evans syndrome where my body just dries my blood, which happens very suddenly. So you can imagine with a caseload that that's really difficult. I've had multiple times where I've just been at work going about my life, um, having had a blood test, I'll get a phone call from a specialist and be told I have to go immediately to hospital. Wow. So <laughs> managing, managing a caseload with that has its challenges. It would be fair to say that Kira has some experience with the topic. Just a little, yes. So with this episode, I'm hoping that we can first draw on Kira's experiences. And Kira, I just know you're very involved in this area as well. Like you said, you're an activist. Um, Just off air, you're telling me that you're submitting, I'm going to say submissions to parliament. And so this is something that you are well-versed in talking about. And I hope that listeners can take away some practical things to help them with their own experiences. And if they're actually going through something similar, I really hope that they can relate and take something away to put into their own practice and lives. With that in mind, I'm interested to know, just from, I guess, the start, like did did your illnesses strike you suddenly in your kind of early career phase or? Yes. Yes. So I first developed Evans syndrome right in the middle of my four plus two. Wow. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd had a previous autoimmune issue called ITP where my body kills off platelets. Um, and I'd had a couple of days in hospital, like years before, and then went into remission. Doctors told me they thought it probably wasn't going to come back. So I was just going about my life. I think I'd had a case conference (laughs) that morning. And I remember sitting with my manager saying, oh, you know, Nikki, I've noticed a few bruises on my arms and I haven't hit anything. I'm wondering if this autoimmune thing might be back. I'm going to go get a blood test tomorrow. I just want to give you a heads up because if it is back, then I might need some treatment. And we carried on with the conversation, didn't think much of it, to be honest. Uh, The next day I went and got a blood test and then Within a couple of hours, I had a call from a haematologist telling me that I needed to be admitted to hospital immediately. Um, I said, oh, but I'm at work. And they're like, yes, you need to stop that and come home and pack your gear and then come to emergency. We're waiting for you. 
Oh my goodness. Yeah. So just like that, I had no notice. And so then off I trot to hospital and the next thing I know, I'm not just killing off platelets, which was what was causing the bruises. I was uh, experiencing something called a hemolytic crisis, which is uh, when you don't have enough blood. So my immune system was killing off my red blood cells, which uh, for those of you who, who might not be as familiar with biology, you need red blood to live. <laughs> I was so unwell that I could not even hold my phone uh, I was just completely down for the count and it was so, so quick. Well, shit. So, I mean, just to kind of set the scene as well, like with four plus two, that it's very onerous. There are lots of requirements you need to get, make sure you're accruing hours as you go along and recording those hours and meeting your obligations. And so you were actively seeing people at this time? Yes, yes. I had a full and active, very busy caseload of young people and families. Wow. At the time. And then you hit um, by this. Yep, hit by that, right <laughs> right at the one year mark. Oh my and, goodness. Uh, oh, it was it was not a good a good time. And um at the time, um, you know, I went from just going along, doing all the things I needed to do, you know, my biggest worry was, oh, I'd better get onto those case reports soon, to doctors in the hospital saying that I was, you know, 24 hours from death if I wasn't having lots of blood transfusions at any given moment. And we weren't entirely sure that I'd pull through. When I hear that, I, I, I feel terrified. Like what was your response in that moment? Um, probably less terrified okay. than you think. Um, part of, part of my treatment was being on really high doses of steroids, which, um, frankly make you quite high. Nice. Um, a really common side effect of high doses of steroids is actually hypomania, mania, or psychosis at really high doses, like about a third of people. Yeah. Um, and I, I was quite able to go, oh, well, you know, I'm still, still reality testing, so I'm not psychotic. I'm just a bit speedy and bossy and I can't sleep. I think I'm hypomanic. <laughs> <laughs> nice self-assessment. Yeah, to be a typical psychologist. Yeah, totally. Um, and um but of course that that brought as well as sleeplessness a little bit of euphoria and a feeling of not being not being quite myself um mm. which at the time both added to my frustration because I couldn't sleep and my thinking was just slightly odd and I kept wanting to go for a run but I couldn't walk um and at the same time it was also another sign to me of, oh, well, I'm really dealing with big stuff and I need to let myself recover. Um, so it, it was a very interesting experience. And at the time I did think about my clients, um, the, the work that, that I like to do um, and was doing at the time was very much working with people with quite um, high and, and complex mental health needs. And I built a really good relationship with with clients on my caseload. So even though I was quite ill, I still had this worry for for my clients of, you know, will they will they be okay without me there? For me, I was quite lucky in that I worked with an amazing team. Um, we had partnerships with other agencies who also provided care, and I had I had a real trust in my team 
that even though I was down for the count, that my team would be able to pick up my clients and and do some therapeutic holding at, at a minimum. It sounds like that was really helpful for you to know because when we think about anxiety, we think, oh gosh, what's the worst case scenario? And like, could I cope with that? And it sounds like being able to have knowing that your team was available to assist was like, okay, like we could actually deal with this. Is that right? Yeah, it made a huge difference. And uh, the other thing that was quite important for me, and, and this is an interesting thing with workplaces, right? So in general, of course, we have the right to privacy and confidentiality too, much like our clients. I'm not obligated to tell clients, oh, you know, I've had this illness. Um However, for me, it was actually really important for work to let clients know why I'd suddenly disappeared. What was that? I think it's because I didn't want them to feel that I had just got some, got sick of my job and left. Mm. Um, I didn't want them to think that, um, you know, that anything short of, of a really significant crisis would stop me from from being there to work with them and support them. Yeah. Um, and also my my area of work is a lot with um, with young people who've had lots of complex trauma, who have difficulties with being abandoned by uh, caring figures in their life. And so for me, I, I really wanted these, these wonderful young people who I've worked with to understand that it wasn't me purposefully abandoning them. Yeah. And what we know about children and young people who have these complex situations where they have faced abandonment is that it could be uh, quite understandable for them to draw that conclusion. So for you, you're trying to help them, I guess, draw draw a more correct conclusion. Yeah, very much so. And um, of course, my work is probably a little bit more hesitant to give as much information. Ah, I'm I'm pretty open. Um, And that that makes it a lot easier because I was very comfortable with my clients being aware of, of the fact that my body was trying to kill me. Um, and the other thing I had to think about as well with work is that, you know, my my work team are really close-knit. They really care about me. And so we also needed to think about how much information they could give my clients that felt psychologically safe to my colleagues in session because they're having to navigate their own feelings of distress and worry about me suddenly being in hospital at death's door. So what do they tell clients where they're able to stay regulated themselves in session? Yeah, it sounds like it would be quite an individual thing, I guess. Some people might be quite uh, natural and quite adept at regulating their emotions when saying like Kira is facing an illness where she might not come out the other side. Um, but some other people might find that that's actually too much for them. Yeah. And, and where I left it with my team, um, was to essentially give them permission to feel out what they felt was appropriate for each individual person who I worked with and with the clinician who was, who'd taken over. Um, for me, that was a way of ensuring that they were aware that they could tell clients that I wouldn't be distressed if they gave information, that I'd given consent for that information to be shared. But also it gave them the autonomy and, and respect for um, their clinical reasoning and their ability to, to navigate issues with clients themselves rather than me dictating, well, this is what you must tell everyone on my caseload. And, um, you know, that, that works quite well. Um, 
Yeah, in the end, I was, oh gosh, I had to take a a year off my internship. I was going to say, like, I wondered if there are any other ethical things because you might not, you probably weren't able to give clients a sense of when you'd be back. And I imagine clients would be like, oh, maybe I'm happy to wait. Like maybe Kira will be back like next week, but it was actually a year. How was navigating that? My workplace were really, really aware of where I was at. So they knew that I was really sick. They knew that I could be off for who knows how long. And so they were able to communicate that reasonably well. And because of the specific caseload I worked with at the time, it wasn't a caseload that you could just, you know, say, oh, well, you can come back when Kira's back. Um, These were, were people with really quite high risk and quite significant needs around care. If, if someone is off work for a month, for example, we don't generally pause the, the work in that time. We, we try to pick it up where we can or at least make contact. So um, my colleagues were able to pick up my caseload and worked with the clients that I'd left behind around um, being okay to see someone new. And that meant they had to carefully build the relationships uh, and very carefully just navigate working with a new person um, when they built quite a a strong relationship with me. Um, What really helped that, and this is something that I think is quite important, was that I was very careful to talk about what a wonderful team I have with all of my clients. Um, Wherever possible, I introduced clients to colleagues um, because we worked in a high-intensity service. If someone just went on holiday, we'd often need to do handovers. So as a service as a whole, we were very careful about ensuring that clients were aware that, hey, we work in a team. If someone's not around, it might mean that you see someone else in the team. Oh, look, here's another team member. Let's introduce you. So clients are already broadly familiar with this. You're kind of uh, socialising them to how you guys work. Yes, and that was so helpful and turned out to be really quite important because it meant that they already had the foundation to build a trusting therapeutic relationship with someone new. Um, And in the end, it worked quite well. Um, I, gosh, by the time I came back, First of all, I I was really unwell. So my previous role before I was injured was completely outreach, um, providing quite intensive psychosocial supports to young people and families, which could see me bushwalking whilst having therapeutic conversations or um, having sessions in a home halfway up a mountain in the middle of nowhere. And when I first started to recover, I'd been so unwell that all my muscles wasted. I had to relearn how to walk again. I had really severe fatigue. So of course, working in an intensive outreach mental health service was completely impossible. Even when I first started coming back to work, I actually came back doing um, service development. We'd won a new tender for a new mental health service and um, the timing worked out really well. I could work from home really part-time, slowly build up, um, putting this new service back together. What was it, what was it like for you to actually have that and actually be kind of slapped by that reality in a way and be like, wow, I cannot actually do this same job. I'm going to need to do a different job. What was that like for you? It wasn't too bad, actually. You'd think that would be a really big blow. Um, 
but I could still see a future where I could come back and work with clients just in a slightly different capacity. So even though I loved doing the really intensive therapeutic outreach work, I still felt that I could eventually come back to doing something therapeutic. And so it it wasn't too bad. It was more like, well, this is really frustrating because I'd really like to be able to go on bushwalks just for myself, let alone with clients. Um, So the, the process of rehabilitation can be really frustrating. Like when I first started back at work, it was probably three or four months after I'd gotten out of hospital, I could do two hours a day. And by the end of that, I was wiped out for the rest of the day and had to go to bed. I was so, so exhausted. Um, Yeah. And, you know, you never recover as quickly as you'd like when you've been that unwell, I think. So I had to think about, well, how do I get from where I am now to where I'd like to be, which is back working with clients. And um, because we'd won this new service and I was in a position to just not do client facing work for six or eight months, I was incredibly fortunate. Um, and I already had a bit of experience in developing new mental health services. I'd written the service manual for the, the, the previous service I'd been working in where I was doing my four plus two, I spent, you know, my first six or eight months in the role before starting my four plus two, just putting together policy procedure service manuals, that sort of thing. So I was like, oh, okay, I can do that again and expand that, that skill set. So I was really, really lucky. Um, it sounds like that really helped. So actually, okay, I can't do that job, but I can do something else. And it sounds like it was really engaging and kind of a pleasurable job for you that you could really sink your teeth into. Yeah, it was. And and for me, that's about my values. So you know, the, some of the things that really attract me about psychology is one I find people fascinating but more importantly is I have this bizarre desire to try to leave the world better than I found it so whilst I find psychology absolutely fascinating because I'm also a massive nerd and psychology is a very nerdy profession it really is oh it's super nerdy like oh wow journal articles oh oh, I've got a minor question time to hit google scholar like who does that (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, so there's that kind of more, I guess, scientific aspect and, you know, my liking for people and finding people really interesting. But there's also this desire to make the world better. And for me, if I'm developing, say, a really solid mental health service where I'm putting in all the systems that help other clinicians be able to do the work really well and be well supported and, you know, know how to manage X, Y, Z issue, um, know how to comply with data collections so they're working in a way that's really solid and ethical, then that's tapping into that value as well as my psychology skills and the nerdy stuff. Um, It means that um, I don't get the same sort of joy of, of directly seeing someone figure out who they want to be and moving forward in their lives in a way that's really meaningful to them. But I get a lot of other benefits from it. And that really helped. Um, Eventually, though, with with that period of illness, I got to a point where I was ready to do clinical work again, which was so, so exciting. And I I just stepped into a a clinician role in the service I developed. I think I'd written the the draft of the position description (laughs) of the job I got. Nice. Yeah, and then I moved into 
the the new service as a clinician there and um, build up a full caseload, had a really good time. But I had this lingering awareness that Evans syndrome is not curable. Um, Evans syndrome tends to have a pattern of relapse and remissions. And I'd already experienced one sudden and life-threatening relapse. So something that I've worked through in internal supervision, in external supervision, in my own personal therapy uh, was what do I do if, if or probably when this happens again? Um, you know, how do, I, how do I work with a caseload where, you know, young people aged 12 to 25, the most common diagnostic label they had was borderline personality disorder. They all had, you know, experiences of, things like complex trauma, um, you know, all, all presentations that meant I really needed to be able to be as reliable as possible. So how do I navigate that whilst also, you know, having this lingering awareness that I could just, you know, drop off the perch at any time. And did you come to a satisfying conclusion with that? Like, how would you? Yeah, look, I did. I did. I, part of, part of my thinking was to acknowledge the fact that young people are humans and getting sick is part of the human experience. And I really reflected on um, things like um, whether or not it's ableist to assume that clients just simply won't be able to cope if I, as a therapist, can't be there. Like, I, I think it's really paternalistic to assume that our, our caseloads will never be able to cope. Oh, no, this, this therapist who we see, you know, my service, it was a bit more than an hour a week, but, you know, this therapist that we see isn't there. Oh, no, what shall I do? My life is over. No, no, I think that's really egotistical, frankly, if, if we think that way. I also think that it it diminishes the resilience and capacity of clients. Um, you know, real life happens. We all die eventually. Um, we all get sick. And, you know, why why pretend that our clients are so so fragile that they can't cope with that reality? I, I agree. Like it really flies in the face of a strengths-based approach and how we think about our clients as being resilient as well and having the capacity to cope on their own. And even at the most basic level, like I haven't had um, severe illness like you've had, but even me being like, okay, I'm sick for this day. And then having that anxiety that comes with it and being like, oh, I'm not there for my clients. Like I'm trying to be consistent. I've gone through a similar thought process and being like, look, they'll be okay. They've survived in their life this far. They'll be okay without me for one day. We'll reschedule. It'll be cool. Yeah. And I think like, you know, at the same time for me, you know, the chances of me disappearing were rather higher than the general population. So I, I did have to think about, well, okay, yes, that, that's true. Our clients are really resilient. And also, though, I still felt they had the right to be aware that I had this stuff that might happen to me where I might disappear. So with my new caseload, I just told them. I said, well, look, I've got this autoimmune condition. It's called Evans syndrome. And I was just really open and transparent and said, look, you know, there may come a time where I disappear really suddenly. We might be in the middle of really important stuff. Know that if that happens... The only reason I can think of that happening is that I've had a relapse and I've gotten sick again. And if that happens, it will be really sudden. And 
I want you to be aware because I feel you've got the right to choose whether to continue to see me or not, just knowing that this could happen. So it's a very values-based, a very like human rights-based approach. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And maybe this is something that listeners can relate to as well, but generally as early career therapists, we're advised to make very deliberate self-disclosures. And if erring on the side of caution, it's like, don't do it unless you can explicitly be like, this is beneficial for the client. And it sounds like in your role, in your position, that it was beneficial for clients to know. But I just wondered whether like you felt any kind of pushback from disclosing this much. I didn't feel much pushback from disclosing. Um, well, I, I suppose for me, I am comfortable working with relatively close boundaries. However, I'm also very thoughtful about issues around disclosure. So whilst I probably disclose more than, than some therapists, I certainly don't believe in the blank face approach to therapy. I Gosh, young people will see through that in a minute anyway. Um, I also tend to feel that some of the, the, I guess, very black and white views around self-disclosure are more about protecting us from being vulnerable than genuinely in service of the client. When I, I think about disclosure, I, you know, I do, I talk it through in supervision internally, externally. I think about it really carefully. I go through, um, I go through steps to ethical decision-making. For example, the, the um, ethicist Ken Pope in the USA has a really great 17 steps to ethical decision-making that you can take. And I'll, I'll go and I'll go through those if I'm thinking about something. Um, but at, at the end of the day, for me, I'm comfortable with boundary crossings if they're not a boundary violation. So a boundary crossing is you know, a, a disclosure or something that, that might be seen as, as crossing a boundary, but it's not violating it. It's doing something that is to the benefit of clients in a really thoughtful and mindful way. For me, disclosing was, was very much about, well, if I were a client, if I was seeing someone as a therapist, would I like to know if they had something that means they might disappear? Would, would, anyone you know is that something that any reasonable person would want to know would it be would it be um creating unnecessary distress in a client to know that their therapist is sick or will it will it be allowing them to engage in informed consent so you know in, in weighing that up I you know thought about my values and thought about that idea around social justice and not treating our clients as less than and so my conclusion was, well, they do deserve that simple respect of just knowing and then being and then having the choice to, to do whatever they wanted with that knowledge. And that knowing of clients did turn out to be quite important because in 2020, I died, you know, I finished my four plus two. I had my general registration. And then a few months later, I got told I was terminally ill. Ah. So uh, I, again, was off work quite suddenly. So in just after I got my general registration, I started getting pain down one leg from time to time, a bit of numbness, tingling, just if I sat on bad seating, didn't think much of it. Only got worse. Um, so I ended up getting an MRI thinking, oh, you know, I've probably got a bulgy disc or I've done, you know, done something to my back that's pressing on nerves. No, it turns out when you have metastatic breast cancer that spread to your bones, that also 
causes pressure on nerves and pain. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So in, in, in the space of just a few hours, I went from, oh, yeah, I've probably got a bulgy disc, time to get an MRI, to, oh, shit, I'm terminally ill. How does one respond to hearing that you're terminally ill? I think I nodded and contained myself. Uh, then I started crying. Then I called my mum and then we all started crying. Uh, then my... Even my um, oncologist was a little bit glassy-eyed. Um, she'd been my hematologist already, so she'd known me for five years of Evans syndrome where I had had other relapses that hadn't been as severe. I knew I had some sort of cancer before I went and got my, my full diagnosis. I had my MRI. The radiologist pulled me aside and said, look, we've found something in your spine. We think it's cancer. And this was actually on, it was just before I was due to go into work for my last day before going off on holidays. Okay. <laughs> so I went from being told I probably had some sort of cancer in my spine to going to the office and um I told I told the manager on my team it was over Christmas this was the 2nd of January so we had a bit of a skeleton staff so one of the managers was available so I grabbed her and said look you know they think they found cancer um I'm going to just finish off all the handover things that I was already preparing before my holiday can you please call my afternoon client let them know I won't be there because I don't know what's going on yet and this particular client would see through me in a second if I uh, if I called them and just cancelled out of the blue um, and I'm not ready for that. So I let, you know, the manager make that call. Wrote up handovers, didn't didn't disclose to my own supervisor for when she came back to leave what was happening because I didn't know what it was yet. So I didn't want her to potentially check her emails on holiday and see anything scary. So it was just very routine. This client needs this, this one needs that, this thing's due in, you know, three weeks. Um, then I went straight from work to see my oncologist, which is when she told me I was terminally ill. The, I guess the best possible timing for one of the most awful things in my life, because mm. uh, I'd already handily done all my handovers. The, the other thing is that after developing Evans syndrome, um, initially, I have always been very careful to stay quite current and up to date on, you know, client records and basically with the understanding that I could go down at any time. Yeah. So I needed people to be able to pick up the work. So the way I write notes is really careful. Um, the way I talk to my team um, around, you know, caseload work was always quite structured in a way to make it easier for someone else to pick up the work, basically. I mean, yeah, that's fantastic. Um, so having that, I guess, foresight to actually be like, look, somebody could legit pick up this case, look at it and continue treatment. Yep. And Good job, Pascara. That worked really yeah. well. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, there, there are a few things here, Kira. Like, I just want to kind of summarize the listeners so far, kind of the helpful things that have been present in your experiences. It sounds like the workplace, the helpful, supportive workplace, having processes in place, being able to have that autonomy to be able to self-disclose in a meaningful, beneficial way. These were really helpful things. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm really struck as well by like, when I hear you talk about this now, like you actually sound pretty chipper. I'm sure like at the time it wasn't like a chipper experience, but I do wonder, like, did you have other supports in place that really helped you through this time? Or like, are you a naturally like chipper, resilient, like excellent mindset kind of person? I mean, I think like most of us, I've had my experiences of, you know, anxiety and being really perfectionistic. Um, <laughs> and at the same time, 
when I got my cancer diagnosis, I'd already had to come to terms with the fact that I could fall over and die like any time from Evans syndrome. So my cancer diagnosis was a huge shock. Um, you know, I think the day I got it, I think I spent like the next three days pretty much in bed, just miserable and letting myself be miserable, making space for the misery. I had, you know, panic attacks and then I'd bring out my bag of tricks, flap a balloon to help my breathing, <laughs> made, you know, made space for all the feelings. Um, but I think um, for me that I'm, pretty resilient I'd already come to terms with my mortality so this was just one more thing uh I do have quite good supports in my life I've got a really supportive husband my family for the most part are really supportive I've got close friends um my oncologist was previously my hematologist so we had five years of you know me receiving really good care the same with my GP um no, on and off, I've had plenty of my own therapy as well. So I had a really good team of supportive people around me. Reflecting on it, I remember at the time, I rem- I was thinking, wow, you know, this is really awful that I've got this happening. And yet I, I felt like my mental health was still better than that of a lot of people that I worked with. Um, you know, I, I had less pain and distress than, you know, any anyone I'm on my caseload who I worked with who, you know, who who had to live with really, really painful symptoms. Um, I think it really helped that my area of interest in therapy is with working with people with really painful things because it it meant that I'd had to do a lot of my own work about, well, how do you hold really painful things? And here here was an opportunity to put what I already knew into practice. so I did a lot of uh, radical acceptance yep. in myself, uh, a lot of radical acceptance, um, a lot of mindfulness, a lot of making room for painful feelings instead of avoiding them. It meant that I was able to process this new reality and identity of me as someone dying of cancer probably more quickly than I might have otherwise. Yeah, I'm really pleased to you with that. And I mean, it does, it, it is like proof in the pudding for the stuff that we tell our clients as well. Like, you know, I always try and say like this painful with your feeling, like lean into it, make space for it. Um, and we assume that by doing that, that the struggle will actually be less than trying to actively push against it. And it really sounds like that was true for you. Yeah. And when, when I got told I was terminally ill, I was going, well, shit, you know, now I've got metastatic breast cancer. But I still have Evans syndrome as well, which could also <laughs> relapse at any time. Uh, and I, you know, and and I I sort of knew more or less then and there that this was it for me as a therapist with young people with complex presentations. Um, so I I made the decision very early on that that it wasn't the right choice for me to continue doing therapy work. Okay, and how was dealing with that like coming to that realization for you? It was honestly, yeah, it, it was one of the worst things about my diagnosis to go, shit, you know, I've just done all of this Yes, work. exactly, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I love doing therapy work. It, it's just such a wonderful, delightful, sometimes painful, but always really incredible experience to, to be there, to, to support people really, to, to be the people they want to be. And here I was going, well, you know, I'm not going to do that anymore. Um, It was really, really hard. Like I still sometimes feel really sad about it. 
And especially with the pandemic, I've got to go, you know, there's this massive shortage of psychologists. Here I am with all these skills, all this knowledge, hard won over, you know, many, many years of working, even before I started my full plus two, I'd built a really solid career in mental health and I'm not providing therapy when there's massive waiting lists. You know, at times, um, that's been quite hard and I, I've had to stand back and go, well, hang on, Kara, you've got all this other stuff going on. Is it really fair to you to be doing that? Yes, there's unmet need. There'll always be unmet need. We cannot be all things to all people. You know, it, it's actually okay to, to not go back to doing that work when doing that work would be really difficult. Like part of, for me, I think why I felt okay doing doing the work with Evans syndrome and an active caseload, but I don't know that I'm dying was also because even though I think clients are quite, you know, quite capable of understanding reality and, and coping and that, it, it also doesn't really feel fair to say, hey, the relationship is the mechanism of, <laughs> of therapeutic benefit. So connect with me, but by the way, I'm also dying. So you can connect with me and grieve with me, you know, and it's not in me to, to hide what I'm experiencing, um, particularly because when I got my cancer diagnosis, um, was also around the time when voluntary assisted dying legislation was being debated in okay. Parliament in multiple states across Australia. And I decided to use my lived experience of being someone who was terminally ill to advocate for voluntary assisted dying law. Um, this meant being on media talking about what it's like to be in a dying body. Um, it meant being on the front page of the news in South Australia talking about it. It meant, you know, writing submissions to Parliament about, um, about my experiences and why I feel that we need a voluntary assisted dying law. Um, it also meant doing, you know, a lot of research about VAD and <laughs> thinking through their ethics as well, reading up on discussion papers, journal articles, um, you know, discussions around the ethics of VAD for practitioners because I didn't feel that I could advocate for something that I didn't feel would be ethical for me to advocate for with my psychologist hat on. That's really interesting, um, like hearing you talk about this because when I hear this, I actually hear you applying the skills that you learned as a psychologist to this area. Like it really speaks, I think, to the transferability of skills. Um, is that is that kind of broadly resonate with you? Oh, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is like awesome because yeah. even though like um, you're like, okay, like I cannot do these active clients and there was like some sadness around that, it sounds like then you pursued this very meaningful thing, which was a social justice thing. Um, and you were also using those hard-earned skills as a psychologist in that area. Yep, absolutely. And it's meant that I've been able to advocate much more powerfully than I think I might have yeah. otherwise. Um and also the, the other thing that really helped is that I have all this experience in talking about really difficult yeah. concepts like, oh, gosh, talking about death, well, that, that's, that's just my usual day-to-day -day. risk assessment, you know. Uh, so I, I can talk about topics that are really uncomfortable and, and a lot of people who have terminal illness aren't as comfortable talking about what an awful experience that is in media. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, like, yeah, like if you look around it, it the AD advocates, there, there are a few of us. Um, we're a small and reasonably close-knit group. I've made some good friends in the AD world, but 
most of the time the people who you see advocating tend to be more um, family members um, who've lost relatives. Um, you know, I, I suspect that's because it, it's probably a bit harder to talk about it and to talk about VAD whilst you're also going through the, the experience of, of having an illness. Um, yeah, whereas I was pretty comfortable to talk about yeah. it. Um, so that's, that's what I did. Um, so, Kira, like, uh, I'm actually wondering, like, with um, with this, like, with voluntary assisted dying, like, what's in the future for you with this? So, is this kind of like your main thing for you? Like, you really like, okay, I'm on this. Um, I really want to advocate for voluntary assisted dying. Is that still your main kind of like um thing to heart? And but if not, like, what's in the future for you with, I guess, your illness, um, your professional identity, personal identity? Sorry, big question. Mm. Yeah, it is a big question. I, I think for me, VAD is still really important. However, we've kind of won across most yeah. of the country. So we got the legislation through in Tasmania. Yeah. We got it through in South Australia, New South Wales, Queensland, Victoria, WA, all along its line. Yeah, huge. Now it's just the territories needing the right to legislate for it. Now we've had a change in federal government. That looks much more likely too. So, um, you know, the, the need for, for advocacy from me has diminished a bit over time just because we, we've gotten there. Like there's still a need to make sure the laws are working well. Um, in South Australia, the, the implementation is much slower than I think it should be. So there's still a need to keep on working to assure that, that things are rolling out and as they should and probably to advocate for some improvements in legislation over time. But... It's not, you know, I'm not needing to make the concerted effort that I needed to when they were debating it in Parliament. So what that's meant is I have been a, a little bit of loose loose ends, um, but also at the same time I've had yet another health crisis. So after I get diagnosis, I took eight months off work. Then I gave work a call and said, look, you know, as, as you know, I'm not going back to therapy work. But I said, look, you know, I've got all this experience in other areas, as you know. Do you want to see if there's something else I can do? Put out some feelers. If there's something that's needed, just let me know. And I had a phone call an hour later <laughs> saying, Kira, come work for us in, in the, the, the National Practice Excellence Team. Come work at doing quality assurance work. Cool. Was that uh, of interest to you? And I said, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because it's developing um, processes. It's looking at gaps in systems. Yeah. Um, it's all about, you know, building excellent services. And that's something that I'd already done some work in um, and really enjoy. So I said, yeah, okay. And and the source was, great. How how much? Do you want to come full time? I'm like, no, it's not two <laughs> Counter offer, two still, days. Still dealing with cancer and Evans syndrome here. <laughs> And um, I actually ended up uh, supporting my former clinical team to go through their first ever accreditation audits against national mental health standards, um, wrote a whole lot of policy and procedure, have done, you know, all sorts of things in that role. And we just got word that we'd passed accreditation last year when... Oh, look, another blood test and another phone call from my haematologist oncologist telling me to be admitted immediately. Was at work going about my life and then back in hospital. That was 30th of June last year. And that was the most sick I've ever been. While I was in hospital, I had one thing after another happen. So first it was all of my Evans syndrome stuff 
flaring up. But then I was also diagnosed with multiple myeloma, which is a bone marrow cancer. It is another terminal illness. Oh, great. So now I have right um yep so I had some chemo while I was in and and then I got out and then I had a massive bleed because I had no platelets and my blood couldn't clot and I needed like all these blood transfusions to live and then I went into multiple organ failure which they thought was sepsis but they couldn't find anything I wasn't responding to any sepsis drugs then they told me I was going to die in hospital like it wasn't a unite it was well we don't think you're going to make it this time um I was so so sick you know the care team were involved we had you know all of that stuff I could feel that death was like right there i you know, I could feel in my body just how close I was to just yeah. dying. I'm glad um, you didn't die, just for the record. Yeah, I, I was pretty pleased. I spent, you know, after the not dying, I spent a few months just, you know, going, wow, I can't believe I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I, I was so incredibly unwell. Yeah, totally. Like, as, as sick as a person can be and still survive, like, you know, with with what happened to me, you know, 90 plus percent of people would would have died. Oh, my God. Um, I mean, it sounds like it when you say that list of stuff, it's almost like a child is, like, just picking random, like, things and then they're like, oh, okay, yeah. people add this to list, Akira, like, this, 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 and this. Okay, go. Oh, yeah, and there's, there's even more. Okay. Like, you know, there was the, I've had pulmonary embolisms. I've had sepsis. I've had multiple organ failure. I've had, um, <laughs> oh, gosh, I had bilateral knee injuries. Just everything happened. My entire body was, like, nah. I'm still like I ended up in hospital all up for about six months wow. during COVID with no visitors. Oh my god, you Oh, it was not pleasant. I had really severe cognitive fatigue as well, so I couldn't even like read a book to pass the time because my fatigue was so severe that I couldn't concentrate enough to read a book. <laughs> so I just kind of had to really lie there for most of my time, just with. TV or music on and it was yeah it was a pretty miserable experience to be honest when I when I think of like I guess it's natural to kind of insert yourself in people's narratives and I like imagine myself in that situation just curled into a ball and just like be like nah I give up on life like I just wonder whether this taught you like maybe like you're more resilient than you thought you were or maybe you already thought you were like I don't know what did it teach you (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) I already knew I was very resilient (laughs) um I think the the most recent hellish experience has definitely tested my resilience probably the most of, of any of it it's been incredibly difficult because it, it's not just that awareness of my immortality it, it's been that crushing level of just not being able to do anything that I could do in the past like you know like not even being able to roll over <laughs> you know so you know that the endless procession of of bedpans and barely being able to eat because you can't really sit up enough um being on and off oxygen all of that um when you when you can't move like bodies are pretty gross right so you can't move you can't get out you can't have a shower so it's bed bath but then also there's the risk of like pressure sores and skin infections and all of that stuff that when you're young and and able-bodied you don't really think of that no it's a privilege yeah and and it's like oh wow okay then yeah, like I, I've been very lucky though. So most of the medical crisis has settled. Um, um, I'm really pleased to hear that. Yeah, my cancer's now stayed, which is great. Like the, the cancer, the cancer actually, funnily enough, has been the least. Okay. 
like like the minute I said brisket oh yeah it's everywhere yeah it'll get me eventually but you know I, I, I've joked to my hematology team I'm like they're like oh you know what do you want to achieve what's your treatment goal I'm like my goal is to live long enough for my breast cancer to get okay me. cool yeah, nice. And then they laugh because, you know, <laughs> they, they understand yeah. why. Given yeah, totally. Else. So I've gone through rehabilitation. Um, I spent a month on a rehab ward learning how to stand and walk again. I can now do much, much more. Like, that's why I'm here talking on a podcast. I can sit up to do a yes. podcast now. How good yeah, it's is amazing. That? I, can con- I can concentrate well enough to string words yeah. together. Wow, what is this? So, you know, it, it's just been a long, slow process. Like, I, I was discharged from hospital in January. It's now late July. I, when I was discharged, I needed a walking frame to get around the house. Um, I can now just mobilise around the house without an aid. Um, when I first got out, I couldn't, like, go for a little walk around the shop or anything. I'd use a wheelchair. I now walk around the shops with a walking like a rider, so walker. I managed to go for a one-kilometre walk last week with my walker around the lake. Fuck yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know, after all, after everything, it was so yeah. good. Like, I'm not up to the shorts yet, but I'll get back there, I think, now. And it is week 11 since my last blood transfusion. Wow. Because I stay killing off red blood cells for, you know, quite a lot longer, so I've needed lots of transfusions, and I've always, you know, I've been quite anemic, so things are stable I'm getting back there yesterday I actually had my very first day back at work in my quality wow congratulations thank you I'm just starting a couple of half days a week and then slowly you gotta start somewhere oh exactly and you know and my new my new project is around working on some service frameworks for for my workplace to use across the country and mental health so that's pretty cool. I've got I've got writing a discussion paper in my future apparently. Cool. That's awesome. Kira, all of this is incredible just hearing this story and I'm really grateful to have heard this every time in your story when I'm like, okay, this will be it. She's got metastatic breast cancer. Like that's it, right? And then you're like, oh, but wait, there's more. Um, it's actually just like incredible to hear your progression. And one of the things that I'm taking away from this conversation is how human psychologists are and how kind of, I almost feel like we're not permitted to kind of be human and have these vulnerabilities and have these things that actually happen in real humans' lives. And it's really amazing just to see you be able to share these with clients in a way that is beneficial to them and also that you are able to have this workplace that is supportive of you and be able to go through that because as we know with early career psychologists, sometimes there are workplaces that are not supportive. It could have been quite different in a different workplace. Um, So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And I just wanted to hear from you, like what, is there anything that you'd like the listeners to really take away from hearing your story? Yeah, look, I, I think there is. Um, the, there's a few things that I'd like listeners to take away. Um, I think the first and most important thing to take away is that you can't be a therapist and not be a human being. If you don't be a human being, we may as well just be doing all of our therapies through apps. <laughs> like be be a human, it's okay. <laughs> um, and not only is it okay, I think it's really necessary. So be human and also fight back against the systems that would tell us we can't be um, when you can within a system because we don't always have the power to do that. Um, I think I've been very lucky because even though 
um, my illnesses have happened at times, you know, where I was doing my training and things like that. I also had established a really solid career. I knew my own worth as a as, as a therapist and as a worker. And so that's meant that I've been able to actively advocate for myself and my clients in a way that you don't always when you're a new graduate. And I'm really aware and I, I'm quite lucky that I've been able to build a career first. Um, but even if you haven't, you know, just just be kind to yourself and be aware that it's it's okay to be human. We can't do this work without being people. So just just let yourself. Um, and I think the other thing to think about is that any one of us could have a crisis strike at any time because that's part of being human, yeah. So I want listeners to really think about how you would navigate if you suddenly just couldn't be there. Like what would you what would you want clients to know? What would you want managed? Do you have a professional will? Um, you know, certainly in Australia, if you're a psychologist, you should have some form of professional will. Um, you know, working in an NGO, you know, I didn't need to write one out or, or have agreements with other providers. But if you work in private practice, you need a professional will. You need to have other practitioners who've said, yes, if you have a crisis, I will take your caseload. You know, don't don't assume that it's never going to happen to you because that's not how life works. Um, you know, my, my hope is that none of the listeners have quite the same number of issues that I've had in my 30s, but you never know. So do really think about how you would manage and what you would do both to look after yourself and support your caseload, even, even when you can't be there if something sudden happens in your life. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Kira. If the listeners want to find out more about you, do you have anything that you want them to, it doesn't have to be about you. It could be like, do you want them to find out more about a particular topic? Is there any way you want them to find you? Yeah, well, look, if you want to find me, um, I'm really easy to find. <laughs> uh, Google my name. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Also, if you want to learn more about Voluntary Assisted Dying, including a few little snippets that I've written, um, visit the website for Go Gentle Australia and you'll find some really good information there. Um, if you're in the Australian Psychological Society, the wonderful Heather Gridley wrote a fantastic discussion paper on BAD. Um, in the lead up to it becoming legalised in Victoria um, that really goes through the issues well in an Australian context. But um, Go Gentle Australia has some really good information too. Fantastic. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well so listeners can access it. That would be really good. Um, Kira, I just want to thank you again for sharing this side of yourself and just sharing yourself with the listeners. I think it would be really beneficial for listeners, for early career therapists to hear that, yes, personal crises do strike and they can strike multiple times over a number of years, as we've seen with you. And it is possible, I guess, to, like you said, like, I guess, have some sense of getting through this, but also lots of acceptance of the difficult feelings that accompany it. And thank you for sharing this with us. Yeah, very happy to. Thank you, listeners. I hope you got something out of hearing my story. Yep. Okay. Well, thank you, listeners, for listening. You've been listening to Mental Work and catch you later. Have a good one. Bye. Thanks for listening to Mental Work, the podcast for early career mental health professionals. If you're loving the show and don't want to miss an episode, press subscribe on your podcast listening app. And if you enjoyed this episode or any of our previous ones, leave us a rating and review on iTunes and Spotify. 
what topics would you enjoy hearing us talk about on the show? We'd love to hear from you. Email us your suggestions at mentalworkpodcast at gmail.com. Have a good one and see you next time. 